here's to courageous pioneers who understand a legacy is multifaceted. Welcome to our Legacy Planning Podcast, a podcast for leaders and visionaries of all ages. Whether you are an independent entrepreneur or someone who is part of a family business, you too can leave something of value behind for a greater purpose. Perhaps your legacy will improve workplace cultures, seize authentic moments, or inspire others with your talent. Your host, Angelina Carlton, is the founder of Design Your Legacy, a boutique advisory firm based in Beverly Hills, California. She is a mentor and coach to leaders like you and has contributed to Alliance, a philanthropy magazine, as well as to women in family business. She has been recognized by Los Angeles Biz as an LA woman of influence, as well as by World HRD Congress for her work. Remember, you deserve great coaching because your legacy is worth completing. Over a year ago, when the pandemic first arrived, many people went into panic mode and retreated to their country homes. Though alcohol and home gym equipment sales increased, so did the awareness that life could change very quickly. Reactions included emotions of fear that were closely connected to the awareness of one's lack of survival knowledge, both internally as well as externally. Today, I have the pleasure of inviting Toby Cowern to chat with us today about survival knowledge. Toby's background includes teaching, risk management, military training, as well as outdoor experiences. He can deliver wilderness as well as urban survival skills training to the highest caliber. Based in Scandinavia and frequently working deep inside the Arctic Circle, Toby holds expertise in extreme cold water wilderness survival skills. And he also travels extensively to deliver applied survival training internationally. When he's not coaching or studying aspects of survival, Toby also deals with management and coaching consultancy, as well as running various highly applied nature immersion camps and seminars aimed at managing and reducing stress, both at individual and organizational levels. Toby is passionate about using immersive nature engagement to help promote positive reconnection with the natural environment, also known as rewilding yourself. And tapping into this personal development and growth that can be attained. So welcome, Toby, to our conversation this morning. Hi, Angelina. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It is a pleasure to have you. And so I understand that what can be familiar to one individual might be completely unfamiliar to the next. So I thought that we might start with, you know, understanding a little bit further about your background as each world is different. Some of your background includes service in the Royal Marines. Would you speak upon that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you can tell from my accent, whilst you said I'm based in Scandinavia, I'm British born born and bred, uh, but been living here in the far north of Sweden for the last 15 years. And so when I was back there in the UK, uh, I joined the military reserves. So this is kind of part time military service. So I ran my sort of regular corporate career alongside that. And I did 12 years service, so five years in the Royal Marines, uh, which is regarded as one of the most elite infantry units that exist in the UK. So sitting just on the special forces level um, or in support of special forces. And then I did seven years as military intelligence, uh, which is, is a fascinating, different world. And I think obviously both of them gave me exceptional experience and skill sets and great insights into different aspects, not only military operations, but also the civilian side of things as well. 
Wonderful, wonderful. Yes, one of the distinctions that we have chatted about before is that for each type of environment, there is what I might call a unique skill set as well as distinctions needed to succeed. So in the world that you come from, it is second nature for you to understand how to survive. And now I think it is a blessing that you have the opportunity to teach this and relay this knowledge going forward. So um, as you have worked extensively um, on your instructional model, how might you start with someone who has zero military training or a background in knowing how to survive? And before you answer this, the tie into legacy, in case the listener or viewer is curious, it's that when people have knowledge and can prepare, they're more likely to complete their legacy compared to what I, I call shutting down in fear with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So Toby? So great question to start with, you know, where, where do we start with somebody that doesn't have any sort of background or, or particular specialization or knowledge in the survival terms? And the, the simple answer is you've got to start where you are. <laughs> um, there's no use regretting that you didn't join the military or you didn't do this already. So, you know, elements of regret have gone. It's acknowledging your situation. And I said, there's two key things. First of all, you must train with the body you're in. That's something we hold absolute sacrosanct. That it's no use aspiring to be like, oh, I'm going to train like a special forces soldier. If you were going to do that, you know what? You'd have joined the special forces. The fact you didn't meant that that wasn't for you. Or it wasn't of interest. So we have to acknowledge the body that we're in and train accordingly. Not only the physical training, but the mental training alongside it and be empowered and comfortable with that. That doesn't mean don't aspire to get fitter or smarter or stronger, but it's just knowing that your own physical and mental limitations exist. Okay. So we start there and then it's basically to understand in the beginning, what is it you're preparing for? So it's a little bit of self-assessment, self-reflection. Don't prepare for somebody else's nightmare. Think about what concerns you, and what is the likelihood of that to happen? So at summary point, we say to people is we want to provide, uh, we want to explore low cost to no cost solutions to reasonably foreseeable problems. Okay, so self-assessment is the start point in that journey. What is it you're worried about? And what was the consequence of that concern? And then where do you start to prepare from there? Wonderful. And one of the things that you have based your instructional model on is something that you call the seven pillars of preparedness. How might you walk the viewer or listener for the podcast through this model, given that a majority of society has lived in a civilian capacity and might be in an average health condition? Understood. Um, and the, the first thing to reassure is this model was built for that demographic, uh, whilst it works, you know, for first responders and military and, you know, all, all sorts of it's absolutely designed for the average person or dare I say the average citizen. Let's kind of put it in that category. OK, so the seven pillars. First of all, let's take a step back and understand, uh, you know, you build pillars because you want to support something. So what we're basically looking at is most people want to build what we call a roof of resilience. This is something that's going to sit over them. That means that they can sort of, you know, deal with what life throws at them in, in the best, most adequate or efficient manner. Now, if we want to have a roof over our heads, what we want is a strong roof that's well supported and most importantly is even. So when we talk about the seven pillars, which I'll break down to detail shortly, the key concept is we need to build those pillars um, at the same level. We don't fixate on just building one pillar as high as we can at the detriment to the other six and then move to the next pillar. So 
the, the easiest illustration I could give you is imagine you've got little Lego bricks and you want to build your seven pillars. You're going to put like one little brick down for each seven pillar and then a second little brick and build them all up sequentially, not 10 bricks on one pillar and no other bricks yet. Does that make sense? It does. So for instance, one pillar could be if somebody was worried about water, for instance, and they had 50 gallons of water, but then no food. Or if, you know, in the American culture, with this term known as patriots or preppers and, and any labels aside, that might be an individual that might own 50 guns, but then they have no food or water in you know, being able to balance out the different categories. So just in case, um, like for instance, the state of Texas experienced an electrical power grid going down for a short amount of time, it's, it's understanding how to uh, prepare in those seven different categories so that it's not just one and the rest is forgotten about. Absolutely. Don't build one to the detriment of the others. So have 50 guns, have 50 gallons of water, but make sure everything else is proportional to that. And this is what we find as we interview people and do our audits uh, and, and connect with our students is they tend to have fixated on two or three pillars and built those up to the to the highest standard they can afford and not even given consideration to the others. And that's where the danger is. It's not even they've purposely neglected those other pillars. They just haven't even thought about them. Okay. Do you want me to go ahead and name like each, yes, each please, individual please, pillar yes, now? Okay. Yes. So in, in no sort of set priority order, the seven pillars we would consider are water, food, fire, shelter, signaling slash communication, hygiene slash medical, and personal safety. OK, um, so each of those is a category in and of itself. And of course, there's depth and nuance to each of those. So when we're talking about water, let's take that as a simple one. It's not just about having a storage of water or a stockpile, but it's also the ability to identify where water can be, the ability to transport that water to a safe location and then process and purify that water and make it safe to drink. So it's not just about having a bunch of bottled water. It's about having those as the pillar builds in its cohesion it's having those other aspects factored in so the first little lego brick on water might just be five gallons sat in your basement uh, but then you would build it um sequentially with those other things but of course if i've got my five gallons i'd do the first brick in my other six pillars and then come back to my water one and go from there if that makes sense it does and i was going to make a joke that seven pillars is way easier than having to read the sas survival guide <laughs> <laughs> just a little humor in case somebody's worried at the moment yes Good. And I mean, Lofty wrote a great book there. I, I've got, you know, Lofty is a good friend of mine. I give him his testament. It was one of the, 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 you know, the seminal guides. But what he's done is broken it down into a lot of just sort of technique. So what we're trying to provide is an overview structure uh, or a framework that people can self-assess and start to build from. Okay. So, so, and, and I understand that you're not keen about checklists even though starting with the seven pillars is kind of a foundational checklist. And the, and the reason that you're not keen on checklists is because you realize that people need more than a checklist because when, when, if, or when that a moment arrives, that it's, it, they have to be um, ready for the experience. Would you speak into that for a moment? Absolutely. So what I mentioned specifically a little bit earlier was don't prepare for somebody else's disaster. And basically by pulling a checklist of buy this gear to be ready off a blog or a website or purchasing it, that's exactly what you've just done. You know, this person has said, here's a list of all the equipment or all of the things I have at home to consider myself prepared. Okay. That's working for that individual, maybe. And let's let's 
<laughs> right, let's kind of you know, touch the elephant in the room here. There is a lot of people in what we refer to as the prepper sphere that don't have a huge amount of competence or contextual understanding of what they're actually talking about. They've assimilated you know, a bunch of kind of Google knowledge and regurgitate it under their own brand. So none of their stuff is even pressure tested. So if you don't even know the source of where they're coming from and you're just gonna print off an arbitrary checklist and say, hey, I'm gonna to get to the mall and or just go on Amazon and buy all this, stick it in the closet and consider myself prepared, mm -hmm. that's not gonna pass buster if you actually need that in a disaster situation or not even a disaster situation, even just a, a you know, like you said, a, a sort of minor grid interruption sure. uh, or, or short power outage or water interruption in, in extreme weather, you know, it's not gonna stand up to that test of actually giving you the resilience you want to have. Uh, we do, sorry, go on. I was just gonna say, and I learned recently that the electrical power grid in the United States receives a grade of a D like delta yeah, I mean, the vulnerabilities to your grid are sort of well known for those of us that research it. But again, a lot of people just have this arbitrary reliance on, well, it must be OK, right? Like right. This, this would be like front page news if it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And the same with a lot of American infrastructure, you know, it, as it was developed, as it was built, it was phenomenal and cutting edge. But the budget for the maintenance and ongoing repair and, and growth just hasn't been there. So that's why you're seeing, you know, you know, iconic bridges just suffering damage that, you know, and I didn't, it's not suffered damage. This is just years of neglect that are now becoming manifest. Same with hydroelectric dams, same with the power grid structure. You know, a lot of the American infrastructure is in very poor condition. And if you know the journals to look at, that's been incredibly well documented for at least the last 20 years. And I think that um, I can only speak for Americans. I can't speak for anyone in any other country. I think uh, sometimes Americans have become very comfortable with the conveniences that are available and we don't realize the depreciation to the infrastructure. So having said that, the good news is somebody could start with three days of supplies and transition to maybe three weeks and then maybe two months. Would you speak further upon that? Yeah, absolutely. So this just harmonizes exactly with this, this gradual growth of your pillars. Don't run out and buy, you know, 200 pounds of rice and 400 cans of beans and say, I've got food for three months. That's not going to go well for you at all. So as, uh, going back to the start point, what we'd advise somebody, OK, if, if you've got very little in the way of things at home, just think if you had to stay home, for a long weekend, 72 hours without going out of your door for anything, what would the resources you'd need be for that? And next time you go to the grocery store, pick up those few extra supplies, those few extra cans of shell stable ingredients that you know you can eat. Get an amount of water that's appropriate for your family unit size. So if you're you know, home alone or you've got five kids and two spouses and, and a dependents living with you, obviously your water requirement's gonna be different. Uh, same if you've got pets in the property. And, um, you know, just thinking that 72 hour period, what is it you'd need to cover mm -hmm. your seven pillars? And then once you've done that, if you double it, so now you buy an additional three days, you've got a pinch, a week's worth of preparedness. So you could literally lock your door and stay on the inside and not come out for anything. Not and worry. Repeat that and not worry. Absolutely. Yes. Just be right. completely self-sufficient. And you repeat that two or three more times you know, over your next couple of shopping trips. And now you're up to the three week mark, which in a mm -hmm. pinch, you could ration it out to a month if you needed to. Mm -hmm. And you repeat that process until you're up to three months. And why we say three months is because global pandemic aside. <laughs> so that's the only thing that's the only outlier that's thrown our model is historically, you know, all, any natural disaster or man-made disaster 
typically resolves itself within three weeks, as in rescue resources are there and taking over and definitely resolves itself within three months. And so actually to be self-sufficient, there's very, very few examples that you would need to go beyond the three week mark. And if you've covered your three months, you, you're really covered for every eventuality. And we can even box the pandemic into that because quite simply, the essential services did stay running for the entire duration of the pandemic. Even if you were locked down, you could still order things, you could get curbside pickup, you could go grocery shopping so it wasn't that you were stuck in this you didn't have access to the essentials you might not have got exactly what you wanted but the essentials were definitely covered right they were so what you're referring to is in order to avoid excess stress it would be good to prepare now because we already saw the what i call the level of stress by just the pandemic alone so you referred to yes people could uh retain an Uber, you know, an Uber ride, they could, you know, have food delivered to them. And yet still we saw increased amounts of depression and suicide and domestic violence and things that, you know, are uncomfortable to talk about. So one could only imagine then if it was taken, you know, a step further, like for example, uh, with uh, what's happening with the gas prices and so forth on the East Coast. And again, I'm not saying that clouds are forming. I'm just suggesting that if in the event something did happen, it's always good to prepare so that one does not have to go into fear mode yeah. or panic mode. And I just want to make a couple of illustrations on that point, if, if you'll indulge me, and, and specifically to two pillars that were massively overlooked. And, and, and in, in hindsight, a lot of people that we're talking to is like, yeah, I just never saw that coming. So we had one pillar, which was medical slash hygiene. And so medications, people, you know, having just you know a few days worth of a medication at home and this is you know possibly a life-saving medication such as insulin for diabetics and the stress of thinking is that supply dwindling is it running out is is it becoming compromised is it going to get rationed that just every single waking moment of like I don't know if I'm going to get that heart medication or that blood pressure medication or that whatever, because they had no stockpile. They might have had all of the food in the world, the chocolate, the crisps, the champagne, the everything. But they, they had a very limited supply of medications. And that became a huge, huge stress. And of course, within that, there became a huge amount of exploitation. These are the things that migrate to the black market quickest because those mm. are the ones that are appreciating in, in, in actual value instead of perceived value. So medical became a massive thing. Another pillar was signaling slash communication. Now, as we break this down in more detail, and sorry, these seven pillars is literally a four hour lecture in and of itself, if I was going to get into detail. But we say signaling is the hardware. So it's thinking about, you know, your phones, your radios, your landlines, your actual method of being able to communicate with other people in the event of, you know, uh, an interruption to regular service. Now, communication is the soft skills. So it's the empathy. It's the active listening it's the ability to mentor and communicate and so what you found is people got locked in together and then the kids got homeschooled and everyone's trying to work from home that inability to effectively communicate within the family unit had an enormous amount of stress with none of the normal stress releases going to the pub or the club or the spa the or even just going out for a walk in nature was denied you right, right. and so that, that very quickly relationships started to fall apart because people just hadn't got any communication skills or any uh, communication skills above and beyond their regular sort of passing at the breakfast buffet in the morning and sure. putting the kids to bed, to bed at night, right? Or I, I might say coping skills with that level of stress. Coping skills when Great. nobody asked for their buy-in. 
right? Great. What a, what a beautiful way of putting it. I'm going to steal that. Consider okay, that stolen. Please do. And so, yes, yeah, so the communication, then the escalation to the coping skills around communication. Brilliant summary. Okay, so uh, you're, you've actually gone to the next question about Sorry. the right. No, it's wonderful. It, so uh, about the right mindset and, and, and its value. So, so let's say stress lands on, on someone's doorstep. Can you speak for a moment about the right mindset? And I could speak all day long when it comes to why the right mindset is important with legacy building and legacy planning, because that's, you know, that's a foundational pillar in the world of legacy planning. But speak to me for a moment about why the right mindset matters with the seven pillars of preparedness. Yes. I mean, mindset is fundamental to everything. Uh, At the end of the day, if you don't have mindset, it's not don't do the other stuff, but it's, it's all by the wayside, because what you're doing with the seven pillars is, is investing time and money into the into the, the, the acquisition of resources and skills and knowledge. Mm-hmm. The mindset comes of acknowledging the situation, being able to cope under duress, um, having confidence in your resilience and being committed to, you know, pursuing your course of action in terms of survivability. And it's a really interesting one. And actually, as we look at the applied wilderness survival, as well as the urban survival, you'll realize every single survival guide or book ever written, Loft is included, that one that you held up, within the first nine pages is going to stress how critically important survival psychology is. And then we'll not reference it for the entire rest of the book. Okay, Mm -hmm. and it's one of those, again, we said people lacking sort of competence or context. It's one of those, it's just sort of disappeared from the understanding that people like, oh, this is how you light a fire. This is how you build a shelter. Don't forget, psychology is really important, but they're not teaching it. They're not giving you any coping skills. They're not giving you any mindset. So that's why we work with a lot of experiential stuff in our physical courses to put people under that pressure, especially when it comes to group dynamics. for them to see how quickly it fall apart then we throttle it right back and say right do you see how quickly those problems are going to develop around psychology and mindset yes so and so that's where you should be investing a huge amount of your time and effort into building your resilience as well as buying the stuff it's developing the mindset and and i might add to that there uh when you say confidence i think it's also one's ability to trust themselves that they can survive in that environment Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Then ex- extended to sort of confidence in the group. Um, that that's absolutely critical. Yeah. Okay. And also, um, one of the things you mentioned before is about the value of intuition and trusting the feeling of being able to take stock. So, um, I might just add to that, that, um, it's, uh, yeah, they have to trust themselves. It, you know, if I could think of something like an affirmation, even just a simple of affirmation is I will make it through this compared to like when Chicken Little says the sky is falling because then we create our reality. Absolutely. And, and again, um, I, I'll tell you a story from Lofty directly, actually. It's not in his book, but I'll mention it. And and, and, and harking about this survival psychology, he, Um, he constantly references in his discussions and lectures about the will to live or having something to survive for. And this can be faith, it can be family, it can be self-belief. And one of his favorite stories is to say there was a guy that uh, capsized a boat and and survived sort of against all odds. I think he was underneath the hull for like nine days. And when the rescue crew eventually got there, they just thought they were going to do a body recovery. And, you know, they, 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 they put the diver underneath and actually found this guy alive. And when they interviewed him, they said, well, how did you have the will to live? And he said, am I allowed to swear? 
or should I sort um, of self-censor? Uh, I'll self-censor. children. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he said, I had to stay alive because I've got to go and punch that insert naughty word guy in the face that sold me this piece of insert naughty word boat right okay, so sure. he basically lived because he felt the boat was defective and he had to go <laughs> punch the guy in the face that, that had sold it him it's a little bit of a flippant story but absolutely having that something to hold on to mm-hmm. is critical but then that belief in self you can is as important i would say he couldn't let someone else get over on him <laughs> Yeah, I might add to that. I remembered, um, and I had shared this with you uh, before today's conversation, that I remembered when I was growing up in Izmir, Turkey, my father had served in the United States Air Force. And there were times when I I don't remember the cause, uh, because I was a child, but we had to fill up the bathroom tub with water. And that's what we had to rely on, on you know, for a few days. And that was just how it was. And, and it wasn't glamorous, it was reality. And my parents knew to to prepare, and it was just a part of life. And, um, so again, I think one of the wonderful things about living in America is I've never had to do that, but that doesn't mean that it might not happen tomorrow. And so. Absolutely. And that, that really reinforced that point you made earlier about that, that sort of comfort with convenience that, you know, the huge space of US society, American society, sorry, I've now got so used to that level of comfort and convenience. They just can't perceive it not existing or it being interrupted. And so when it does, you know, 80% of the planet knows how to deal with this, but the panic mode kicks in. And a great illustration here is the, the, you know, the toilet paper shortage of 2020. You know, two thirds of the planet goes to the toilet more than once a day with no toilet paper. There's absolutely ways to deal with that. Right. If, if you know that, right. are, that are perfectly fine, but we're so used to our four ply quilted, impregnated with moisture toilet paper. As soon as that goes Scented. missing, it's like, you know, l- panic. Oh, what are we going to do? This is a critical issue. And it's like, well, no, there's, there's eminently other solutions. Right. Um, right. So I think great illustration there like these nations where it's a very standard to like charge the batteries or fill up the bathtub that's been absent from a lot of western society for 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 the last three or four decades minimum Mm -hmm. and certainly from a huge phase of american society for at least that time period if not longer yes yes point very good point right because we're used to our uh lavender scented products and our organic everything and then if 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 or when uh reality changes um, and that's, this is one of the reasons why I wanted uh, to have you talk in today's video is because w- what is one reference point? And, and even if I can introduce this idea of survival or where to go to, and of course, in the show notes, your regular YouTube video channel will be included. It, it's, it's taking maybe some time out of your schedule to learn more about this topic. So again, one isn't blindsided. Um, and I wanted to speak for a moment about the, the mindset thing, because you talked about um, when 80% of society is fine, unless or until the fear kicks in. And one of the things that I know about coaching, and you might know this also, the human brain can operate in fear as well as growth at the same time. So I'm gonna say it a second time because I said that kind of quickly. The human brain cannot operate in fear as well as growth at the same time. So you have to pull the human mind out of fear to get it into a logic mode. And then when the human brain is calm, then it can say, oh, okay, I can do A, B, and C. It's not a big deal. But when the when a human is in that uh, pure fear mode, it's almost like you have to like pull them out of the six foot trench. Would you speak to that for a moment, Toby? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those we we're working around that on our physical courses constantly because for, for a lot of them, we're inducing that state. 
uh, and very typically actually dividing the group in two and inducing it in one half to allow the others to see it. Because when you're in it, you don't recognize it. You know, you, mm. you know I'm, I'm thinking logically, you know, uh, <laughs> you're not, <laughs> you know, but, but, but the whole manifestation of your body, the one thing that's not happening right now is anything logical. But when you're in it, it's very hard to, to tell. So one of the first things you want to train people in is to recognize people entering into that adrenal dump or panic or stress or concern and fear, and right. then give them tools to manage, manage people out of that. And very often what we say is, you know, you have, you cannot de-escalate somebody else unless you've de-escalated yourself first and so by being in that zone by by bumping into it more often you start to recognize in yourself what the warning signs are building your coping mechanisms or recalibration mechanisms as we like to call it a lot of breathing exercises, calming exercises. We work with this in the emergency services constantly, especially with our new recruits. They're, of course, getting you know massive adrenal exposure very early on, but still need to perform within their work. And in time, and, and you know, with with time and training, the tolerance builds incredibly well. Mm-hmm. But you do need to give it a bit of time and training. But when if it, it's great that you use that word blindsided. If you've never had it before, it is just getting hit by that freight train and just not knowing what's going on and just panicking. And like calm is contagious, so is panic. Panic is contagious. And so you've got to manage that critically. So to manage that critically, oh, it just froze for a second. I think you said yeah, yeah. to manage that critically. Absolutely. Critically I, and quickly. Oh, very good. Very good spot on. Absolutely. Yes. When somebody, and I know this from a coaching perspective, so I can compare that if, if somebody walks into a room and everyone's laughing, it makes you want to laugh and you don't even know why, just as if you walk into a room and everybody's tense and angry, all of a sudden you feel mad. And again, you don't even know why it's like that hundredth monkey syndrome. Yeah. And I, I wanted to add also, I think that um, when you use the word witness, I think that's also really good because there's so much that can be attained and obtained when we can witness another person's experience and not even necessarily have to, to be in at that moment. So it's like when you said you had group A and group B and group B witnessed what, uh, how and why group A reacted the way that they did, it, it, it hits a little bit closer to home because group B can think, oh, I'd never act like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just wait. <laughs> Isn't it? And that, that's the thing, you know, we, whilst our brain is incredible, our self-delusion is our own worst enemy. Sometimes I never act like that. Right. That's never going to happen here. Right. I'd never, I'd never address somebody that way right. yeah, until you're in that moment. And then boom, like, there right. we go. You're doing it all. <laughs> right. And the sensibilities are thrown out the window. Yeah. Yes. And I, and, 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 and mean, we ha- oh, please go ahead. So, yeah. And I was going to say, you know what, to, to understand not only the neurological level, but you are effectively in that state being chemically hijacked. You know, your body is producing incredibly potent chemical releases that are designed to tap into, you know, millennia old hardwired systems. So your upper level thought processes are not in charge at that point. You know, this is getting into to sort of deep brain matter stuff that, you know, your subconscious brain or your, you know, your lizard brain for want of a better descriptor, yes. albeit yes. inaccurate, is just, is just running the show now it's, it's going like, to take I got over this yes. and and yeah I'm, I'm in control until we kind of get out of that and so that's that's where you've got to sort of take the time and training to get through that and the, and you absolutely can train through it mm-hmm. but it's not in it's not an intuitive process at all sadly and and I don't know if the the uh, British military covers it but I know in the U.S. military they talk often about breathing exercises the control and be aware of how one breathes to change that physiology 
Yeah, I think it's it's one of the greatest things. Certainly when I went through training as a recruit, it was it was just you know, the put up and shut up and suck it up buttercup kind of thing. I think, you know, the, the modernization of many militaries, especially on the very long uh, drawn out wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, have forced us to deal with our recruits in a far more intelligent manner. And certainly that's come through the emergency. In fact, I actually think it crossed from the emergency services to the military uh, okay. because they were way ahead in terms of those physiological functions of getting um, control, control of self by control of breathing and things, which actually came from trauma recovery um finding people in an incident in crisis so there's been i wouldn't say there's advances in the field because this is ancient knowledge mm -hmm. but the awareness of it has now become far more paramount which is brilliant and and much much needed and i think breath work for all of the things i get involved in, is one of those it's a borderline superpower that's massively overlooked but once you tap into it it, 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 it's a total game changer. And once you've got some of those basic breathing exercises down and confidence in them and their efficacy, that becomes a default tool, which is usable in many, many circumstances. It, right from, you know, having the, 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 the screaming baby at home all the way through to being in the, in the midst of a, a full on traumatic situation and everything in between. Wonderful. Good. So in situational awareness, What's important, and um, you can change the, the semantics of this question. I wrote, what's important in dealing with other civilians? <laughs> we'll stick with civilians, why not? Uh, I don't think anyone's, or citizens, you know, we can put it okay. that in okay. a nice context. Okay. So what's important? I, the first thing to acknowledge is for good situational awareness, we need to be engaged with all of our senses. So anything we're doing to distract or deprive our sensory input is a problem so when you go to your basic self-defense class they'll tell you certain things like don't you know don't jog with your earbuds in or just have one earbud in and one ear open okay because if you've just blocked out your senses because you're just like out for a run or, or a walk with your podcast on or your music on that's one sense totally out the game Mm -hmm. okay can be the same with anything that, that inhibits your your vision either peripherally so this can be sun hats or you know things to the side or whatever the case may be all of these things are problematic so the first thing to understand for situational awareness is if i'm doing anything to distract myself from the situation that's a problem because i i am not situationally aware if i'm reading a book or talking on my phone or listening to a message or whatever the case may be okay and being able to so, read the landscape so, yes, exactly. Because if, if I'm distracted in that, I'm not now reading the terrain mm -hmm. and establishing what we refer to as baseline around me. So what is baseline? Is it's that normal level society is going in at uh, or society is operating at? Because any glitch in the baseline, the tempo up or the tempo down should get our attention very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So it, to surmise it another way, when we're looking for things to concern us in situational awareness, we're either looking for the absence of the normal or the presence of the abnormal. So looking at troops in contact, to give which one military example, you know, if I'm going down a busy marketplace on a patrol and, you know, all families are out and it's a busy bustling scene and mm -hmm. all of a sudden the women grab their kids and go off the street and shut the doors and windows that's a change in baseline, right? And something right. really bad is about to go down, okay? Because they've all read the situation and realized something's about to happen, okay? Um, so it could be on our baseline in a, in a regular everyday circumstance, um, presence of the abnormal. It's warm weather, it's summer, but somebody's wearing a really big, bulky, heavy jacket and, you know, a hat and shades and it's been very close in their body language. And that they're not dressed the same as 
anybody else in that situation. Mm-hmm. And that's got to draw your attention and start to question that process. Why, why is that person dressed like that? And why are they acting like that? That's the presence of the abnormal. Uh, sorry, the, the presence of the, uh, the absent. Yeah, presence of yes, the abnormal. Yes, yes, yes. Absence of the normal okay. is, you know, you could be in the, in the workplace environment and there's just a kind of low level buzz and hum to the background noise. People okay. chattering, murmuring, and then something really cuts through that, you know, a piercing crack that you'll want to believe is a car backfiring. Let's be honest, since when have cars backfired? You know, that's a kind of 60s car problem. Modern cars don't backfire, do they? Sure, sure. That that crack sound, we need to think start thinking in different terms of what that might be. Was it Mm -hmm. a gunshot? And if it is, that's now a massive change in our normal, right? Right. And the situational awareness. Yes. Situational awareness. And again, this is not to scare anybody, it's just to again increase the awareness that if one had to prepare for a change in the landscape that these are some tools that are available okay yeah so, it's just about seeing the warning signs and all of these things will be precluded by warning signs it's only over what time scale mm-hmm. so so let me dip into fear for a moment <laughs> so how does fear polarization and or hate and the reason i only i bring up hate today is because of the divisiveness that can be found in, in the world today not everybody is divisive but it can be out there so i'm not going to uh, pretend that it's not. So how does fear, polarization, and or hate play into a person's ability to trust their intuition? And what I wanted to add to this, because you, you brought up, you know, some, some of the ancient knowledge, one of the things that I'm aware of is since the time of Aristotle, humans love story. And in the story, there's the hero, the guide, the victim, and the villain. And it's very easy to categorize someone as a villain. But in a survival mode, you might have to rely on the person who thinks differently than you, might have, be a, a different political affiliation than you, might, you know, something, fill in the blank. So would you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, uh, and again, it's sadly, it's a huge topic that's so important, but, and to condense it down into something viable in a short like- period is, is really, really tough, right? Uh, we can, I, I can say two, two or three key things on this. Um, for all political and even geopolitical event, uh, uh, agendas okay. throughout the entirety of history, there's always been a playbook that's being followed, right? Um, and, and this isn't speculative. You know, literally books are written of if you want this result, you're going to do this to your population, okay? Sure, sure. Various playbooks exist. We won't go into the details now because we don't have time. So one of the things we constantly look at when we do our trend analysis and assessment across countries is what playbook is in play. Now, the thing to acknowledge is anything that wants to drive people, that wants to separate people or segregate people into tribal identities, it doesn't matter what identity, but there is an agenda on the go. And if you buy into it, you are being played. It's and and, and your survival simple. can can go down. Yes. Because quite simply, when we're talking about urban survival, what we're looking at is too many people and too few resources. So you either have the resources and the ability to protect them and you're okay, or you're going to need to source the resources. Now, for that, you're going to be you're going to have to be the biggest, baddest, scariest person on the block because you're just going to take it. Or you're going to have to be very personable and now start to get, you know, in, into exchange mechanisms, to build which in teams. modern society is money. I'll right. pay you for mm-hmm. your goods or your time or your mm-hmm. labor 
and you will in exchange take that right and if we remove money and we go into sort of the barter trade society we're still doing a transaction of i am exchanging it's still an exchange transaction i have something that's of value to you you have mm -hmm. something that's of value to me and can we exchange mm -hmm. now the problem is if i vehemently hate you and consistently tell you how much i hate you that exchange isn't going to go well is it and it might need to happen it might need to happen what yes. was the point you made earlier medication if right. you're if you've gone out because your mom or your wife or your husband or your son doesn't have the vital medication you need mm -hmm. but someone from the other tribal identity does mm -hmm. you're probably going to have to play nicely right right mm -hmm. otherwise you're not getting it full stop mm -hmm. or you're paying paying Mm -hmm. way over the odds right. as a tax for your abrasiveness, shall we bakshi, say. Bakshi, Bakshi, just kidding. Go ahead. Right? <laughs> so have your tribal identity, have your causes, have your beliefs, you know, wear your clothing items, buy in by all means, but understand the self-limitations that exist around that. Now, just to touch on a, a very brief story, this is why on our courses, Selka and I, Selka is my business partner that lived through the, the Balkans conflict through some atrocious conditions. And we take a lot of his teachings and work back from those to build these models we're talking about. On our courses, we constantly get students wanting to know our political affiliation, our viewpoints on gender issues, race issues, and this and the other. And we constantly say, we plead the Swiss. Okay, in yes. US, you have the Fifth <laughs> Amendment, which is silent. Swiss in European terms are strictly neutral. We're neutral. We don't right. we, we don't hold a dog in any fight. Mm -hmm. OK, because neutrality is key, because that is how you negotiate through the urban landscape as best you can. It doesn't mean if you're in the middle of a riot, you're not going to start chanting what everybody else is chanting. OK, so if I suddenly stand out and say, oh, I don't believe your cause that you're in and one hundred and fifty thousand other people are all behind it. I've just bought myself a big problem, haven't I? But just because I'm chanting that chant doesn't mean I believe it. Mm -hmm. It just means in that situation, that's my best way to blend into, into what baseline mm -hmm. we talked about that before. Right. I'm, I'm now I'm not blipping the baseline up or down. So it goes back to attitude. It goes back to mindset. Have your beliefs, hold them dearly, but be prepared in certain circumstances. You may have to put them on hold or mm -hmm. be very, very, very quiet about them and not be vehement or outspoken or anything, because that is going to completely destroy your ability to negotiate or exchange or communicate or discover what you need to in that moment. And, okay? and survive and survive. Yeah. And survive. This is yeah. your central tenets of survival. So yes, if the, if the petty differences of, I don't like this person, I don't like that person, or I'm afraid of this person, I'm afraid of that person. Um, yeah, survival just decreases. I wanted to share a quick story before I move on to the next question. So yesterday I was out grocery shopping and a lady approached me in the parking lot. She needed jumper cables and I don't carry them in my car. And she didn't want to talk to anyone else in that parking lot. So I became her negotiator and I, and, and the problem did get solved, but what I found to be so interesting was of that initial fear of, I can't talk to those people, or I can't talk to, you know, fill in the blank. And so I think and, in those moments, somebody has to rise is, above. Is how quickly you can instill that in someone. Look in the last 18 months at how many tribal identities are now on the table and you've got to pick one or more. And it's, and it's feeling that you've been forced, that you've got to hold a stance mm -hmm. and it's what we call the false dichotomy it's like you know if you're not this then you're this 
there, there's a whole bunch of other things that exist, but the media don't want you to believe that. And that's why we know it's agenda driven. Mm -hmm. Everything's polarizing. And that's why we tell a lot of people in the first instance to minimize the fear is just turn off the news, you know, massively reduce your media consumption because it is unhealthy. Sadly, in this day and age, it's terrible that we're, we're at that stage in society that we've regressed so much, but consuming of mass media is incredibly unhealthy for your mental well-being. So taking the information that's important, but really one of our top tips we tell many people is just limit your media exposure. And I think both you and I have referenced that. We have sort of friends filtering it for us yes. and sort of saying, hey, be aware of this thing. It's great. Then I don't need to have the TV on for four hours because... I've got good friends around me that are consuming more media than me and sort of tell me the, the important things. And so, you know, that you, everybody can just kind of calm down a little bit, minimize their stress, stay focused on the more important issues. Because that's the thing, isn't it? These are all distractionary tactics, not yes. letting you focus on the important things of your own welfare, your small circle, your family's survivability um, and these kind of things. Yes, yes, and survival. So the next question is, and it, it's just going to kind of reframe what you've just said, but I want to ask it anyways. Uh, what's important to know here in today's atmosphere of dehumanizing people that, that may be or think differently than us? What's important to know about that? Okay, so this is a two-edged sword. Um, so we don't want to be guilty of it because we're getting played. If, if I'm going to start othering people and saying, if you don't share my tribal identity or my viewpoint on this you're a problem. Mm -hmm. But even if I never other another person in my life, I must acknowledge it is being done to me. And this is the, 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 the problem here is the good guy syndrome, right? <laughs> or the good girl syndrome or the, or the, the, the good person syndrome, let's call right. it. The, but I'm a good person, right? So all those people in that parking lot you spoke about before, if you went up to them and said, do you know that lady's scared to talk to you? They would all say, but why? I'm, I'm not a bad person. That's irrelevant. That person has got themselves in, that, in themselves in that mental condition of holding fear of you, for you or from you. Mm -hmm. And so all of their actions are going to be based on that. So I'm hopefully not othering other people, but I must acknowledge I am being othered or dehumanized in other people's eyes. And that's why situational awareness and monitoring the baseline is so important. Because I might not be out in the street intending harm on anybody. That doesn't mean there aren't people immediately around me that aren't going to intend harm or be very quick to escalate a situation to physical altercation up to and including higher level use of force because of their preconceived perception of the problems I'm bringing. Okay. Yes. yes. And understand, I sit here today in a shirt with red. Certain way. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and we must acknowledge that happens. Okay. Okay, very good. All right. So let's break through the myth of surviving in the wilderness. Uh, though the idea of a lone wolf gets glamorized in Hollywood movies, there's actually a trauma in real life that, get, that gets associated with it. So would you talk about this image and would you break through it in terms of what is actually practical in real life? Absolutely. So very often on the wilderness survival things as, as i present myself to a group and, and take people through foundational skills i'll refer to myself as a torch bearer and actually this is my legacy uh, okay as we get onto that later on what's a torch bearer? somebody that keeps the, the light going the flame alive because so many of these wilderness skills have just disappeared from society 
Okay. People don't own them anymore. They don't have them anymore. They're, they're not intuitively there. And by the time they figure it out, they're already going to be severely harmed, if not dead. Okay. And that's just how the modernization of societies happen. So these people are going to be, oh, I'll run off to the wilderness and figure it out. Mm-hmm. You won't. You just won't. And take it from a guy that spends an inordinate amount of time in the wilderness and teaching and training people in the wilderness. Most people are not going to cope well with compromised situations in urban society, let alone when you strip out all of the resources and introduce all of the environmental hazards that they've never even thought about. Okay, so the skill set is missing. Number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, um, the whole of humanity is based on community and by modern proxy society. We do not do well on our own. And um, there are notable survival cases of people surviving prolonged periods on their own, but they are the exception, not the rule. Mm -hmm. And they very often had an incredibly strong will to live or something to live for, as we mentioned earlier in the guy in the boat discussion. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The guy in the boat, right? Um, And so they they just, you know, they did the bare minimum to survive. But Mm -hmm. typically the aftermath of surviving that event is devastating. And so that's the other thing we need to think about when we talk about survival. Can you go back to leading a fulfilling, rewarding life? And when we talk about the Balkans region, you mm-hmm. know, where my good friend is, that entire region, to an certain extent, is, is suffering from collective long-term PTSD. You and know, what trauma. happened there? They've, they've, the, the, the whole society is traumatized. And that's why the progress in certain regions has been so slow and so stunted, is they just... they they just haven't been able to process and move beyond that trauma. Right. And resolve um, it and resolve it. Mm-hmm. And so, so, and that's passed on to their kids and now even their grandkids, you know, if you look at generations are basically, you know, 15 years spaced apart, the mm-hmm. war ended 30 years ago. Yeah. 30 years ago, nearly 40. So we're two generations in now. So the people in the war have now got grandkids and that's generationally being passed in, in, you know, not only in the epigenetics, but in actually the trauma manifestation. So surviving is one thing, but recovering afterwards and under this roof of resilience, there's another part which sits separately from the seven pillars, which is actually what we call the five strategic R's of recovery, mm-hmm. which unfortunately we won't get to go into today. Which but is- if you want to come back and talk about that separately, we can. And we actually typically start at that end goal from the beginning to say, how do we want to recover mm-hmm. from this? And increasingly the awareness of, of the trauma management in that, the mm-hmm. mental health cost is becoming far more apparent. And sadly, this is going to be the legacy of the pandemic. Isn't going to be, I'm very sad to say, and I'm not being flippant all, the people that died of coronavirus or associated conditions, it is going to be the multi-year, if not potentially generational mental health fallout of what's happened in the last year and a half and will continue to happen for some time yet. Sure, sure, absolutely. Those are some really valid points that you're bringing up. And so this idea that's glamorized of I will be this lone wolf in the forest and I will heroically all do it by myself. I just want to kind of blow through that myth at you know this moment right now because it does take a village. It takes a community. And yeah. there's so many other things that we don't even think about because we're so used to our regular routines each day. Okay, so. You can say the lone wolf won't survive or if okay. they do, they'll be, they'll be sad that they did. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Because it impacts them. Yes. Massively. 
So I'm going to say a statement and I'd like you to respond. The statement is don't run away from danger, run to safety. Okay. Um, so first of all, I have to give credit for this. Um, so this was this phrase was coined by a very good friend of mine, uh, Rory Miller, critically, accrowned, uh, critically accredited author, uh, largely around the self-defense sphere. He's got a number of great books out there. So I highly recommend his works for people that are interested in this side of things. And he coined the term, don't run away from danger, run towards safety. And this is a brilliant reality check or gut check for mindset that if i'm running away from danger i'm just panicked about what's behind me and you know with the lemming analogy i can just run straight off a cliff so i ran away from this scary thing straight into this worst thing okay so we don't want to run away from danger we want to run towards safety so I'm thinking about what am I concerned about and then how do I get away from that and where is that and what does that look like? OK, and that's that classic. This is what blows through that lone wolf wilderness one. Mm -hmm. Is that really safe? If you're worried about the city burning, if we go back to like the L.A. riots of 91, mm -hmm. you know, was the safe thing to do to just run out to the hills above L.A.? Not really. You, you weren't any better off. It was to go to, you know, another city or friends or family or a hotel or a motel outside of that initially impacted area mm -hmm. and just wait a few days for the situation to calm down. That was what running towards safety looks like instead of away from danger so it's a little bit of a dated example we could go back to superstorm sandy in new okay. york we it's knew great. it was going to make landfall we mm -hmm. knew it was going to hit the tip of manhattan uh, sorry the bottom of manhattan now my geography is off um okay. so it's just a case of you know move to, move a little bit up the city or a little bit up the state and okay. just allow the storm to pass right yes yes Good. Very good. And I just wanted to highlight something real quick as we we're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but um, some things to watch out for is dehydration, poor sleep dynamics and group dynamics. Those are a couple of areas that people might not think about, you know, as they, uh, you know, acquire, you know, a couple of weeks or months of supplies. Yeah, we, we can categorically say those are the things consistently, completely overlooked by the average person. Okay. Um, they're, they're, they're worried about food. They're, they're worried about security. Um, they're worried about convenience. They're worried about entertainment. They're worried about comfort items. It never occurs to them that dehydration and sleep deprivation and group dynamics is going to be an issue. And I'll tell you, all three of those issues are going to hit you really hard, really early in if a true sort of grid Christ. down or disaster situation. Yes. Um, and it's because we just cannot fathom that tap not working when we turn it on. Right. And we cannot fathom operating military aside or some mm -hmm. professions um, operating on less than premium sleep. And we cannot fathom group dynamics disintegrating really quickly as people are forced to do things they don't want to do. Right. right, right, right. So what's truly essential in a first aid kit? And then I'll ask you about your personal legacy. So this, I love this question when, it, when, you, when you sort of went through it. And the, the fact is, it's the knowledge to use it. Um, many, many items in, in, in a regular modern first aid kit can be easily substituted or improvised. Mm -hmm. What you cannot substitute or improvise is the knowledge. And so you can have, you know, an ambulance. Let's not talk about first aid kit. You can have a fully equipped ambulance and, and your patient. But if you don't know how to use any of that stuff in the ambulance, it's no good, is it? For anything. You're out of luck. So, out of luck. So again, we're back to that checklist question. What should I have in my first aid kit? The first thing is basic physiological and reparative and rescue knowledge. You know, how to assess a scene, how to move a casualty, how to stop a traumatic bleed, 
how to call for help, how to communicate your position. All of these things are far more important than what's in your first aid kit. Once we get into treating that casualty, now we can look at, you know, this tourniquet versus this tourniquet, this bandage versus this bandage. But there's a whole stack of stuff above that that mm -hmm. we need to get through before we get down to what does a good first aid kit look like. And I think a part of that comes to the fact that I think is right now society a bit is, is what do I own? What do I have? And then and this way of thinking is, is different. Yes. Yeah. OK. So I would say it's not about what you own. But the question I would ask is, what can you use? And what do you know? Yes. So yes. if you go into your garage and you say, oh, you know, I've got my gas grill and I've got my uh, MRE box and I've got my tent and I've got my Lofty Wiseman book and I've got, that's brilliant. You've got it. Can you use it? Can you put that tent up? Can you right. operate that stove? Can you prepare those meals? Can you stomach those meals? Have you ever tried that food? Mm hmm Right. Even the military don't like MREs. These are meals ready to eat, by the way. Yeah. Yes, right? yes. So, you know, if you're going to voluntary feed yourself that for, for a month, you might have a thing or two to think about. So possibly switch out that question. Not what have I got, but what can I use? Sure. And I think a, a, a part of it is also um, somebody's willingness to get their hands dirty. Yes, they have to. Yes. Yes. Well, uh, I just want to share this funny uh, insight from my, my father's favorite James Bond character was Daniel Craig. I think that's the actor's name because he said to me that he was one of the first James Bond characters that finally got their hands dirty. Right. Like right. his tuxedo got messy, right? Right. Like, right. Perfect. right. Exactly. And, and, and I think in a survival sense, somebody might have to get their hands dirty if, if that's, you know, yes. if, if or when. So the good news is that as a species, we're highly adaptable and resilient and resilient. How can we re uh, but the question that I wrote down is how can we reclaim our safety, well-being and welfare? And if you would uh, be willing to share maybe one or two ways that you might suggest that people can become more self-sufficient in terms of unplugging from today's um, conveniences. Okay, so I, I really like the word that you use there, reclaim. And it is that, you know, we have outsourced as society and as individuals, we're all guilty as individuals, entirely too much of our own well-being and welfare to others. And we must start reclaiming that. OK, so it doesn't mean don't pay for the convenience while you've got it, but absolutely building your contingencies that if that goes away anytime soon, you've got your, your contingency plan. And you know what? Maybe start to work with some of those contingencies, throttle back a little bit of convenience, you know, get your hands a bit dirty, start moving things around a bit more. You know, we said about train with the body you're in, but everybody can be a little bit fitter, a little bit stronger. So don't always take the easy way out or the shortcut, you know, get a little bit of physicality in there, build that confidence in your body and your ability to do things. You know, I talked to my daughter about it. She's just turned 16. And so something breaks. Okay, you can immediately call a repair guy. You can. Or you can just search on YouTube and just look at some basic options to repair it yourself. And then think, can I give that a go first? If it's a block drain, what's the worst that can really happen? It's very hard for you to mess it up more than it already is. So give it a go. Try to unblock that drain. And if you do it, brilliant. And if not, well, you were going to call the guy anyway. So then put in the call. But you, you at least tried and you gave it a little bit of a go. So what I would say is we start to reclaim it, reclaim it at the simplest, easiest, most accessible level for you. You know, don't strip the engine out your car and try to rebuild it if you've never touched anything mechanical before. All right. But basic, simple skills, simple repairs. Um, try tackling them yourself. Tell you one very quick story, if I may. Um, 
a lot of people don't realize but within the military all military units and the marines especially as was wednesday afternoon have a period that's called make and mend that you're okay. basically going to deservice all of your kit and make sure it's functional and either repair it or take it to stores for a replacement and it's only replaced at a certain level of degradation and so within that you might be given certain things to add to your uniform so typically unit insignia and patches is one of them now Modern societies, it's all Velcro, so you just stick it on. Back in my day, oh, get me back in my day, you had to sew those on. And in my platoon, 30 guys, nobody knew how to sew. No one. So we were told on Wednesday afternoon, by parade tomorrow morning, everybody's going to have this badge in this location, this distance, this measurement, this, this, this. And I was the guy that literally had to stay up the entire night sewing on 30 badges on our arms so we were ready for parade the next day. What did I do that weekend? I taught everybody how to sew. Because it's like, guys, I'm not doing that again. Right? I'm not staying up the entire night to sew on 30 badges for the whole platoon. You all need this skill because it could be darning socks, fixing gloves in the cold weather environment or something like that. So we've outsourced all of that now. If it's broke, we just buy a new one. So the simplest reclamation, if something's tired, worn or broke, try mm -hmm. to fix it. Mm -hmm. and try to fix it yourself. And if you're going to throw it away and, and buy a new one, well, do that eventually anyway. But you at least tried. OK, right. that's the simplest start point uh, and grow and go from there. Don't stagnate at that point. You know, use that as the first stepping stone, like you're going to build the pillars and then start to explore. OK, what are the things I routinely service? Can I do that myself? Do I really need to bring in a guy? Or can I start to do that myself and save that money and possibly reinvest that money in training or equipment? You know, because so now I'm being financially smart along with it. I'm saving money on the one thing I can do myself. I'm going to reinvest those funds that I've released over here in something that now means something more to me. Very good. Beautiful insight. And what would you like your personal legacy to be? Because if we can survive crises and we can survive disasters, then our legacy uh, might be carried on. So what would you like your life's legacy to be? <sighs> So I mentioned earlier about the torchbearer status, um, you know, a lot of these skills, not only in the wilderness, but increasingly the urban are disappearing. And so it's very much to pass those back to people as much as I possibly can in my okay. personal legacy. To instill those intrinsically in my children and facilitate within the company structures I have. And I sit as a board of directors on three different companies is to facilitate if they wanted to enter into those companies in their careers moving forward, they could do. And so they could continue, um, you know, basically picking up where I left off and moving forward because that generation has additional problems to face. You know, our generation has caused any number of problems that the next generation is going to be tasked to solve. Right. And so my legacy is very much not only what I can give back to people from the context and the skills I've been awarded with and learned the hard way. And so I can save you on your journey, but it's to make sure I pass those down to my children uh, and facilitate for them the opportunity to be as well-rounded, resilient, survivable individuals as they can be. Very nice. Lovely. What a beautiful legacy. Thank you, Toby, so much for your time today and the delivery of your insights. I thought it was uh, very thoughtful how you delivered much of the information, given that the viewer or the listener of this podcast might not have any type of background, when, whether it comes to survival training or any type of military background. And I think that this has served as a good introduction that they know that there are resources and individuals out there that do know about this niche and can be of be available, can make themselves available to assist so that there doesn't have to be a panic or uh, fear that we just glide through any type of crises or disasters and we work together as teams 
and yes. that um, we can have the right mindset for these moments. So thank you so Absolutely. much, Toby. You're welcome. If I can just say in conclusion, you know, Selka and I have seen what happens when it goes wrong. Okay. So we're trying to instill how to do it right. And so that's why we just push out as much information as we can. And we're so glad for opportunities like today to have to come on uh, and do this chat with you and just spread that message to people that this this is uh, is out there and is accessible. You just got to do a little bit of digging and a little bit of commitment to get started on it. But we hope you do. Very good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Angelina.